this fourth installment in our uh, Spheres of Worship series that we're doing, and this is specifically on prayer in private worship, uh, secret prayer, which that language obviously coming out of Matthew um, chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that you are God in heaven and that you hear when we cry out to you because of the mediator, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you hear us because he ever lives to make intercession for us and that he has clothed us in righteousness and he has made us acceptable in your sight and because we are united to him and though our sins have separated us from you so that you did not hear in those days of rebellion and self-righteousness and self-dependence yet now as we trust in your son we know that you hear us And that you answer from heaven. And so, Father, we pray as we come to this time together that you would deepen our understanding, that you would give us a spirit of grace and supplication, that you would give us a desire to call upon you all the days of our lives, that you would revive us, O God, that you would make us a praying people, that you would make us a people that are quick to be on our knees and to call upon you. And we pray that we would know more of you and more of the Lord Jesus through this time together. We pray these things in his name. Amen. As we continue uh, considering uh, private worship and the things we ought to do in private worship, I want to get to um, singing at some point, and I'll probably put that into family worship and public worship, and we'll deal with that in that area. But I want us to consider together the the place of prayer in private worship. And um, there's a verse in the book of Acts where the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows, they're having a fight about who's getting a bigger meal and who's getting served first. And so everybody comes to the apostles and they say to the apostles, you know, all the widows are fighting. You got to go take care of this. And the apostles say, we cannot. And, and you would think that the apostles would then say, we cannot leave the ministry of the word to wait tables. But they say we cannot leave the ministry of prayer and the word to wait tables. And I actually believe there's probably an intentional order to that, that ministers are to give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And those two things are really, you could say, the chief means of grace for the people of God. The way Christians live um, in light of God's grace is to be a people that pray and a people that are in the word. Now, we've talked a lot about the word, and I intentionally put the word first and then left this time for prayer, partially because the word is what informs us about prayer, what prayer is, who we pray to, um, and, and it gives us content for prayer. It teaches us what we're to pray. Um, I don't intend to give you any books on prayer outside of the scriptures, at least not in this lesson. And as I thought about this and I prepared this, um, my, my inclination was to say the greatest need that we have is to go to the Word and to see in the Word what we learn about prayer. And it's interesting that the disciples come to Jesus, they recognize their inadequacy, they recognize their, their um, insufficiency and their ignorance regarding prayer. I mean, these are men who know the Scriptures, who have grown up in the synagogues, who have seen the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders pray, who have witnessed Jesus praying, who have seen the Lord pull away and pray all night and spend 
hours upon hours communing with his Father in heaven. And yet they come to him at some point in the ministry and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. I've always found that to be an interesting thing that here are the men that are going to turn the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. These are Jesus's chosen band of disciples. These are those that the Savior of the world is going to pour into for three years and then send them out after his death and resurrection to change the world. And these are the ones in all of their weakness and all of their faithlessness and their failings come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think for us, that's a, that's a good heart cry. That's a good cry. That's a good prayer. That is a prayer, isn't it? They're going to Jesus and they're praying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. And so I want us to consider several of the prayers in Scripture and how they're instructive to us, um, for both with form and also with content, and how that can help us and aid us in our own uh, lives of private prayer to the Lord. And so notice Matthew 6, 9 through 13, I'll read this for us. Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount says to the disciples, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to say a few things about what we call commonly call the Lord's Prayer. There's actually another Lord's Prayer we're going to consider in John chapter 17. But this prayer is important because Jesus is giving us the format for prayer. Notice the language that he uses in verse 9. In this manner, pray. Now, many churches are used to reciting the Lord's Prayer. It's very powerful at Presbytery meetings. When we end our time together and a man is praying and he says, And now, Lord, hear us as we pray, as you taught your disciples to pray, and everybody starts praying the Lord's Prayer together. And lots of congregations do that, and families do that. There are people who sing the Lord's Prayer. I've always thought that's a little bit weird, because it's a prayer. But we sing the Psalms and their prayers. Uh, But Jesus is not saying, just recite these words, and that's all you need to pray. That would be a danger in thinking, just recite these words. What Jesus is actually doing is giving his disciples a theological skeleton of prayer. He is giving them a form in this manner, pray, after this form. Now, we will often talk about the ACTS acronym, which we'll get to at some point, I think is very helpful. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, that kind of covers the bases. Um, I think you see the ACTS acronym in here, not in that specific order. It's probably better to go with the order that Jesus has given given us first by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And notice that Jesus is giving us categories to help us know how to pray. And I think to pray privately. I think this is, I have many times tried to follow this pattern in how I pray privately. And so notice that uh, he doesn't start with Um, Well, let me say this before I say that. There is a corporateness about this that we have to kind of dust away. This is a prayer he's giving them for corporate prayer. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. So, I mean, this is going to apply 
to family worship. It's going to apply to corporate worship, but I think also for private worship, it's very helpful. And notice that he doesn't start with, uh, come to your father and say, give us this day our daily bread. I tend to think, if you're anything like me, most of our prayers want to lead with, Lord, forgive me because I'm so wicked, or please provide this because we need this. They tend to be, both of those are in this prayer. You're going to have confession of sin, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Interestingly, give us our, this day our daily bread is before that, which I always found kind of fascinating. But you're going to have both of those things in here. But it starts with adoration and praise and worship of God. It starts with God. Prayer is God-centered. It has to be God-centered. The psalmist teaches you this. It's impossible to read the psalms and not get that David got that prayer should begin with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So prayer, first and foremost, should be us coming to God, acknowledging that he is the sovereign God, that it's his kingdom, his will, his name, his glory, that we exist, as the Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so a, a right prayer, I think, starts with the glory of God. Turn over to John 17 and keep your finger at Matthew 6. And notice that Jesus does this very thing. And I'll talk about the form of his prayer in John 17. I think that's a very helpful. Both of these are very, very helpful, by the way, in just instructing us in, in what to pursue in private prayer. But notice that Jesus, in, in what has been called the high priestly prayer, um, right before he goes to the cross in verses 1 through 5, he starts with himself and his relationship with his father, and he has that unique relationship. He's the redeemer. He's the mediator. He's the eternal son of God. He's the word that was made flesh. So there's something unique to Jesus in this prayer. But notice, what does he start with? He starts with the very thing that he teaches his disciples in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and in Luke. Notice this. Jesus spoke these words, that is everything he taught his disciples in the upper room, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There he's saying, your kingdom come. You've given me authority over all flesh. I am the king. I give eternal life to whoever I will. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Your kingdom come. In essence, your will be done. Verse 4, notice, your will be done. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Your will be done. And then notice, really, back to hallowed be your name. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So you can see those similarities in categories. Even though Jesus is praying uniquely as the Redeemer, and we don't pray that prayer exactly as he does, we can't say glorify me, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world was, because we didn't have glory with him before the world was, because we're not the eternal Son of God, but... Jesus does the very thing he instructs his disciples to do. So prayer is always Godward. You also see this in the Apostle Paul's prayers. You see it 
in those little prayers at the beginning of Ephesians, which you may not think about as prayers, they're expositions at the book of Ephesians. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Essentially, Paul is saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Blessed be the God and Father. Peter does the same thing, same formula in First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing to help us in private prayer is when we fall on our knees to God, we should say, Lord, you are the infinite God. You are the almighty God. You do according to your will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And nobody can say to you, what are you doing? You are the sovereign God that upholds all the molecules and the atoms. Now, a helpful way to pray this, I found, is to pray the shorter catechism answer to what is God. I did this. I found this as a new Christian. I was meditating on the shorter catechism. And when I'd start praying, I would start using what it says. And and it says, what is God? God is a spirit. I think it's question four. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So it gives you the three incommunicable attributes. You're not infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Only God is. And then it gives you communicable attributes. Being, you have being, wisdom. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He gives us wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So those are helpful things to pray when you, when you think about praying this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That entails everything about who he is, right? When Moses comes in Exodus 33 and he says, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to pass by you. You're not going to see my face. You're going to see my back and I'm going to proclaim my name. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity, transgressions and sins, but by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. So he gives the totality. He's just, he's merciful. He's all powerful. He gives you his name is his, he is his attributes. So, first place to start in private prayer, I think. I fail at this miserably, and so we are all on a learning trip together, is to take what Jesus says and to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and all that that means, adoration of him. Now, secondly, go back to Matthew 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done. These are the works of God, specifically for redemption. That's a good place to pray for the salvation of people that you don't want to see perish. Your kingdom come in the life of this person and this person. Actually, it's, it, has massive, it has massive implication because when the kingdom of God comes in the consummation, the world is going to be filled with perfect righteousness. And that means praying against all evil in the world. Our catechism actually says that praying your kingdom come to God means praying for the destruction of Satan's kingdom. I remember praying in worship here once years ago, many years ago when we first started, that God would tear down Islam and having somebody say to me, that was really weird. I've never heard anybody pray that. Why would we not pray 
that God tears down satanic, wicked religions. Why would we not pray that? That's not God's kingdom. It's not the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I will pray that. The psalmist would pray that. Jesus would pray that. Jesus would have us pray that. That's not mean. That's seeking God's kingdom. Now, hopefully that is torn down through the gospel going to Islamic nations and Hindu nations and every other false religion, nations that are dominated by false religion. But we ought to pray that God's kingdom comes, that his righteous rule comes, that his name is made known through the earth, that the gospel spreads. So you, you can think everything from the salvation of loved ones, neighbors, anyone you know, to God's righteous rule through his word and spirit in this world, in every corner of this world. And then notice, uh, 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying that God's will is not done on earth in the sense that there's one sense in which everything that happens is God's will, right? God has a secret will and a revealed will. Everything that happens is God's secret will. So God's will, even Islam is in the will, the decree, the secret counsel, what God has ordained. There's nothing out of God's control, but his revealed will. Jesus is teaching them that we pray that we and all men would submit themselves to God's word and his will and would seek to do what he wants his people to do. Now, when they say on earth as it is in heaven, I think he has respect to those glorified saints and angels who always do the will of the Lord. That's what the psalmist says, that in heaven, in glory, everyone is doing the will of the Lord. Um, Here on earth, um, it's sad that man is in many respects worse than the beast in that... um, and my dad said this to me once. It was a profound thought. You know, people always they want to get into all the scientific nonsense about the flood. And um, my dad was witnessing to my um, uncle. And my uncle said, I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear the gospel anymore. And my dad said, you know, there, there was a day when men didn't want to hear God's word anymore. But you know who wanted to hear it? And my uncle said, who? And he said, the animals. And God directed them into the ark. Noah didn't go get every kind. God brought them to Noah. He brought them into the ark. The animals obeyed God. Um, It's also sobering that Jesus commands demons to go out of the demoniac into the pigs. And they obey him at his command. Now, they don't obey him and bring him glory, but he has power over all creation. And what we need to pray for is that God's will would be done in our lives, in the lives of our loved ones, in the lives of our church, in the lives of all those around us, that God's will would be done. Jesus prayed that, right? I've finished the work you've given me to do. I've glorified you in the earth. Now, 11, verse 11. Notice the next step now, moving from God to our direct needs. That's always a helpful division for me, that you have love to God, love to neighbor. You have the two tables of the law, as it were, in the Lord's Prayer. First, ta- first four commandments have to do with God, his glory, his worship. The last six have to do with our relationship, 
personally and then with our family and our neighbors. I think the Lord's Prayer is divided that way too. God first, then our needs. Notice that verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. You know, I'm convicted of how little I pray that God would provide because I know I do my job, I get my paycheck, I go to the grocery store, we get our groceries, we bring them home, we put them in the fridge, we go out to eat, we thank the Lord with a really short, cheap prayer because we don't want to pray a Baptist prayer in public, out in public. But how often do we actually say, Lord, provide? Every day, give us this day our daily bread. I'll never forget Sinclair Ferguson saying, as he preached through this text, you might be one of those intellectual types who think, I don't need, I don't need to pray, give me this day my daily bread because I work hard and I'll just get up and go to the fridge and get what I worked for. And Ferguson said, the problem is you can't even stand up and walk on your feet to the refrigerator unless God wills that you do. You don't even have the ability to make your heart beat for another second unless God wills that you do. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why in the Old Testament it's so full of teaching on drought and famine and the judgment that God sends when his people rebel um, because they're not trusting in God. So God takes away that provision and then they realize they have no daily bread. Um, I sometimes like to remind myself that there could be a day coming when we don't have grocery stores to just drive to and just get what you need and come home. We take for granted what lots of parts of the world don't have. So it's important for us that we would acknowledge that unless God sends rain, unless he causes the ground to bring forth in bud, unless he provides livestock and cattle and everything else that we get our food from, we don't have any food, that it all comes from his hand. And then notice as Jesus walks out of this prayer, then an acknowledgement of our iniquity. And I here I want to really just, I want to camp out on two things that are important. I think anytime we pray, we should be able to confess sin. I don't think there's ever a time you should be able to go to God in prayer and not confess sin. Um, and so Jesus says, part of our prayer should be confession, forgive us our debts. I like that better than transgressions. I like debts. The idea of indebtedness, we are indebted to God. I think it's a better translation. Some of you may have learned it in the forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those that transgress against us. I think that was the, the authorized version. But I like, I like the fact that it's translated debts because that's what sin is. Sin, sin is it puts us in bankruptcy and debt to God. Um, So we have nothing we bring to him that eliminates any, Lord, look what I've done. Notice notice that in private prayer, what's absent, notice in what the form Jesus has given you is, Lord, thank you for making me better than other people. Thank you that I'm not like these prostitutes over here. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I thank you. Notice the difference between this prayer and the prayer of the Pharisee in the temple. Notice that That nowhere in here does it even say, when you pray, say, thank you, Lord, for the degree of sanctification that you've given me. Even though we are to pursue sanctification and you better have it in your life. Nowhere in the prayer does God say, bring that sanctification and say, Lord, thank you that I didn't get in a fight with my spouse this week. Thank you, Lord. Now, you can thank the Lord if you don't get in a fight with your spouse. 
<laughs> but Jesus tells us that part of our private prayer should be, Lord, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. And then it's interesting that he includes the second part as we forgive our debtors. As you go through the Gospels, you find these places everywhere where Jesus is teaching that, that someone may, may think in some sense they need forgiveness, but then when somebody sins against them, they are unforgiving to them, which shows that they haven't been forgiven. Um, it's unbelievably convicting when you start to think, when someone sins against you, how do you respond? Wounded pride says, I deserve better than that. How could they do that? And Jesus told that parable, remember, of the two men that had the debts. And the one who had the greater debt, his master forgave him all of it. And then he had a man who had lesser debt owed him. And he's, and he, he's harsh and cruel and imprisons him. And then the master comes and he says, you wicked and harsh servant. I forgave you all your debt. And this is what you went and did. And so I think Jesus is teaching us, not only are we to be praying, forgive us our debts, but built into that is an acknowledgement that I know I've been forgiven by Christ. I know that God is a forgiving God. I know he will forgive me. And because I believe I've been forgiven, I am ready to forgive the debts of others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I've always found that to be very powerful. Why did Jesus have to include that? Because... Our confession is so small, and our readiness to hold others to a harsh account is so large. And so a truly forgiven person is going to love much and forgive much and extend much grace. Um, I will say this at this point. I, I find Psalm 51 to be the most helpful um, pedagogical tool for this section of the Lord's Prayer and for our private prayer in particular. If you do not pray Psalm 51 on any kind of regular basis, I really encourage you to start doing that. Learn that language. Remember, let's turn there. David has sinned grievously. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has murdered Uriah, who's one of his best friends. I always like to highlight that. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. He was not just some stranger. This is one of his best friends. David has premeditated his murder. He tried to get him drunk. Well, he tried to tell him to go home and sleep with his wife after she was pregnant from the adulterous relationship. Uriah was more upright than David. He wouldn't go do it. Then David gets him drunk and thinks now he'll go do it. And, he's, and Uriah's like, no, now he's all drunk. No, I'm not, not going to go back to my wife because the men are out in the field. And so then David writes a letter of premeditated murder to put Uriah on the front line where he knows he's going to die in battle. And not only does David premeditate the murder of Uriah, he hands Uriah the note to take to Joab. Now let me say this this morning. David was godlier than everybody in this room. I, David was a man after God's own heart. Every king after David was judged according to the standard of David's uprightness. And here's a man who commits adultery and murder, who then doesn't repent for at least nine months to after the baby's born and dies. We know the baby's been born. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him, tells him the story about the sheep. It shows how slow we are to confess our sins, by the way, and how rare real, real repentance is. 
And I'll say this too, uh, Stephen Birch and I were talking about this recently. David is the best repenter in the Bible. David is the best repenter in the Bible. Nobody repents like David. And yet it took nine months at least for him to repent of adultery and murder. And in between that time, presumably, he's going to the temple to worship. He's the king of Israel. He's still on the throne. And Nathan tells him the story about the, the, the uh, man with the one little ewe lamb. And then the rich man with lots comes and he takes it because he has a friend coming. He steals the little ewe lamb. David being a shepherd and having loved the little ewe lambs, having cared for the little ewe lambs when he was a young man, was, was angered and said, that man should be put to death. And, David says, and Nathan said, you are the man. And it was at that moment that God cut him to the heart, brought him to repentance. David, David says in one verse, I have sinned against the Lord. And without any gap between David saying, I have sinned against the Lord, the Lord says, I have put away your sin from you. The second David acknowledged his sin to God, God said, I have put your sin away from you. Nevertheless, your son's going to die. The sword's not going to depart from your house. Great consequences, but David's forgiven. We get Psalm 51 out of it. I'm not going to read all of it, but let me just note that this should be a staple in our prayer lives. Notice Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before you. And then notice verse 4. David doesn't say against Bathsheba and Uriah I have sinned. And this is always good. When we've sinned against someone else, the first person we need to seek forgiveness from is God. Forgive us our debts because who are we indebted to? God. David says against you you only have I sinned. So it's as if, because God is the most important person to whom we are accountable, David can say it's as if you are the only one against whom I have sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Then notice five and six. David doesn't then go on to confess his bloodshed. He'll get to that later in the psalm. He'll, conf- he'll confess the bloodshed, the murder later. But notice this. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What is the first thing that David confesses? His sin nature. This is very important. And, I, and I've done that many times and encourage you to do that, that When you've sinned against God, the first thing you should confess is, Lord, I have a sin nature. I was born in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. I was not a tabula rasa. You're not a blank slate and you just made a mistake. You are dead in sins and trespasses by nature. You have a a sin nature that loves to do evil. That's why we don't teach our children to do wrong. They know how to do plenty of it. We don't teach our children to disobey us. They know how to do that. They have a sin nature. In sin, David said, I was brought forth. In sin, my mother conceived me. And then David will talk about the heart and the need for the joy of salvation in verse 12, the cleansing of the heart. And then notice verse 14, he finally gets to the actual sin. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation.
and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. He expresses confidence that once God forgives him, cleanses him, restores the joy of salvation, that there's, there, it's grace. David got grace. David wrote Psalm 3 after all of this happened when Absalom was tr- chasing him. And he said, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter up in my head. David said, you are the God of my salvation. After all of this, David knew he was forgiven. He, embr- he knew what Christ would do for him. He knew God would provide full atonement for all of the sins that he had committed, murder, adultery, whatever else, all of it. David said, restore the joy of my salvation, then I will sing of your righteousness. So jumping back quickly to the Lord's Prayer, I think that is important, that we ask for forgiveness and that we acknowledge that we are in a posture of forgiving those who have sinned against us. And then notice verse 13 Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um, Jesus is not teaching his disciples to pray that God doesn't let us be tempted. Now, remember, God doesn't tempt. God sends trials. He doesn't tempt us to sin. That's what James says. God does not tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted. He sends trials. He sends cancer. He may take away the life of a loved one. He may give you financial hardship. There may be a hundred thousand trials God may send into your life. That is not the temptation. Satan comes in and turns it into a temptation. When the spirit took Jesus into the wilderness, God was not tempting Jesus. He took him in there to be tempted by the devil. God works through agency. When God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil off limits, God was not tempting Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a trial, a test, just like cancer is a test. Satan came in and he takes the test and he turns it into a temptation. That's the way that always works. Just the most basic way I I can say that to you is if you feel tempted, if you're tempted to lust after someone that's not your spouse, God did not put that person in front of you to tempt you. That may be a trial. Satan turns that into a temptation or in flesh has evil desire, James says. There's a very sophisticated theology of temptation in the Bible, actually. And we are not to pray, Lord, do not let me be tempted. That's not what Jesus is saying. Notice the words. Do not lead us into temptation. Do not let us essentially fall into it, give into it. Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would keep us from sin. He's not saying, and, and how, can, how do I know, how do I know that Jesus is not saying, Lord, don't let me be tempted? How do we know that from Scripture? Perfect. No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to take it. So that's, that's what we're praying. The, temptation, the trials have to come. The temptations have to come. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, James says. Then he receives the crown of life. Temptations are going to come to sin. Who's behind that? Deliver us from the evil one. So a part of your private prayer should always be, Oh God, bind Satan from me and my family. Keep him from me. Give me grace to see the way of escape. Keep me from sin. That should be a daily prayer. 
Keep me from sinning against you. Lead me not into temptation. And then there's a textual variant on whether the conclusion should be included or not. You're going to find the same language in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. And so I think it kind of sums up everything. It's sort of a doxology at the end. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, we are out of time. I am going to stop with that for now. I may come back next week if you'll permit me to talk about um, Jesus' high priestly prayer, if you would like me to go on, because I think that has a different set of instruction for us. Um, But I want to encourage us, and I'm encouraging myself, we need much better prayer lives. We need much better prayer lives. And that's not to make you feel condemned and, and to paralyze you. That's to encourage that we would be asking each other, how's your prayer life going? Are you pulling away? Are you praying when you drive in your car? Are you taking a few minutes in every morning? Are you doing the morning and evening prayer? I know that we all fail at that. Um, so I want to encourage us to be encouraging one another. You know, somebody asks you how your prayer life's doing, that's not, that shouldn't be offensive. That should be an encouragement. You should be able to say, you know, I didn't have a great one this week. And then you guys can pray together, and then you purpose to do that. So find people you can trust to do that with. Um, and use the form that Jesus gives us. I love that he gives us an inspired form. Last thing I'll say on this is the Psalms. The Psalms are the best way to get words to pray. Um, there's this place in Hosea, I think, where um, it says, um, take words with you. The Lord says to Israel, take words with you and say, take away all our iniquity and deal with us graciously. So in Hosea, God is rebuking Israel and he says, take these words with you. Come to me and say, take away all our iniquity and deal with us graciously. So God, that's the Bible and that's the Psalms, right? When my heart is overwhelmed within me, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's Jesus. That's a great Psalm 61 too. That's a great prayer. When my heart is overwhelmed within me, Work is stressful. The future is uncertain. Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There are hundreds and hundreds of perfect things that God gives you to pray in the Psalms, in the rest of the scriptures. So make use of that. Take time to familiarize yourself with the language of the Psalms. I'm done. Questions or comments from any any of you? Today you said you weren't going to give us the books. I definitely understand one of the, the a little pamphlet that I found over the years that's super helpful is Martin Luther's letter to his barber mm. about the Lord's Prayer. And it just, you know, it's not very long, but he, he so expands on each of the each of the sections. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Luther's letter, uh, what Bobby just said is Martin Luther wrote a little a pamphlet on Martin Luther's advice to his barber or letters to his barber, and it's an exposition of the Lord's Prayer, and it is outstanding. And you can find it online for free in probably PDF format if you search for it. So that is outstanding. And then if you want to read a really lengthy treatise on the Lord's Prayer, uh, Thomas Manton, one of, the, one of my favorite Puritans, has like tons and tons and tons of sermons on each but that's if you want to go really deep and are having a hard time sleeping at night. So, anything else? Any other comments or questions? Chris. Um, praying before meals. Where is, where is that Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, I thank you, Father. I get 
Well, I think not everything is, is uh, prescriptive in the Bible, right? Some things are descriptive. I think it's just an aspect of showing gratitude to God. I don't think that I don't do I think that it's sin if you don't pray before you eat. I mean it's it's a question I wouldn't even want to ask. I think it's a good habit. I I personally I don't want to bind your conscience, but I personally I think I I don't feel right about not thanking God for food. I'm not trying to get out of it. Right. I think it can also be Pharisaic in public. I will say that. I think that if you're, it could be, and I've been on the receiving end and probably the giving end of that where at different times it's like wanting to be heard or seen as a witness. And I think that can be Pharisaic. I mean, we're to be praying to the Lord not to be seen by men. But, you know, I think it can also be a witness if you're not seeking to be seen by men, especially in our day when less and less people are calling on the Lord publicly. So... I think it's just a wisdom thing. I don't think it's necessarily, it's not commanded. But men ought to pray always is commanded, right? Men ought to pray always, lifting up holy hands, prayer and supplication. I just think it's, you know, but it's not, I mean, close your eyes is not biblical. It just helps, right? Um, Richard Pratt wrote a book called Pray With Your Eyes Open. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say, okay, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And yet we make law out of that, which I think is Chris's point. But I think there's wisdom to closing your eyes because it helps remove distractions. So anyway, I don't know. But Jesus does it. And I think a descriptive example of Jesus does have more binding weight before he feeds the multitudes. So, all right. Any other questions or comments? I'm going to pray and then we will prepare to worship. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who is in a relationship with us, who wants us to be communing with you through your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us prayer, that you've given us the words to pray. We do pray, Father, that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would... Give us this day our daily bread, and you forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We ask, our God, that you would lead us not into temptation, that you would deliver us from the evil one. And Lord, we worship you, and we pray that you would give us hearts that are full of praise and thanksgiving and confession and brokenness and joy over the salvation that you've given us in Christ as we come to worship you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.